I'll invite you to turn your Bibles this morning. Uh, let's start in John chapter 1. We'll look at some other uh, scriptures in the uh, Gospel of John. John chapter 1, I'm going to begin in, in verse 1. Verse 4 is really the one I want you to see, but I'm going to get, begin in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we know in verse 14, this is talking about Jesus. It says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So when it's talking about in the beginning, it's not talking about when the earth was created. It was talking about in the beginning, whenever the beginning was. Do you understand what I'm saying? The beginning was not the creation of the earth. The beginning was whatever point in time our finite minds have to attach to the start of whatever there is. Uh, God's before that. There is no start because God's eternal. That means God's eternal going backwards just as much as God's eternal going forwards. But it's telling us in the beginning, and, and this is not trying to, to uh, define eternity. It's just saying Okay, the human mind needs a starting point and an ending point to make sense. Whatever you want to attach that starting point to, God was before that. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, talking about Jesus. All things were made by Him. Jesus is the creator of all things. God's the planner. Jesus is the creator. All things were made by him, and without him or apart from him was not anything made that was made. So we see the devil doesn't have any creative power then. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Turn with me over to John chapter 5. Jesus said of himself and of the Father in verse 26, John five twenty-six. He said, for as the Father has life in himself. Now, how do you define life in an infinite being? I don't think there's any human words uh, that, that can adequately do that. But we have to have some kind of point of reference for understanding. And so Jesus said, as the Father, for as the Father has life in himself. Now, he used a certain word here, and it's a word that's used throughout the Gospels. Uh, and, and really through the epistles as well. The Holy Ghost is consistent throughout the New Testament. There are different words that are used in the New Testament that are translated life, but anytime it's talking about the life of God, it always talks about one, uses one specific word, and that's the word zoe, Z-O-E in the Greek. They tell me that you say it zoe, I don't know. I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm not an English scholar. But, for, uh, but nevertheless, there's a word, a certain word that's used to define the quality of life. Now, Jesus did not invent a word. The Holy Ghost didn't invent a word for talking about the life of God. This word is in is in use in the, the ancient Greek writings. But you have to have something to describe what Jesus is trying to, to, to get across. How do you describe the life of God? He used the word zoe. And for our definition, for the Bible definition, zoe would simply mean the life of God. Well, what is that? Well, we don't know exactly. We know characteristics of it. We know that the fruit of the Spirit are characteristics of the God kind of life. We know that uh, that Jesus said that, uh, or the Holy Ghost said through the Apostle John in the letter that he wrote to the church that God is love, so God's life would have to be love. So we see certain characteristics and attributes of the life of God, but Jesus just comes out of nowhere and says, for as the Father has life in himself. there, In other words, there is a quality of life that God possesses that mankind does not. 
For as the Father hath life in himself, so has he given to the Son, Jesus is talking about himself, to have life in himself. Now in John chapter 10, in verse 10, Jesus says, describing this again, he says, for the thief, talking about the devil, the thief cometh not but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Folks, that is the devil's job description. The thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Anything that kills, anything that steals, anything that destroys is got to be of the devil if Jesus told us the truth. Now, if you just accept the word at face value, that'll answer a lot of the questions that the church seems to struggle over. Because so many times the church seems to think that, the, that God's the destroyer, that God brings or allows, I think that's just splitting hairs on words, but brings or allows destruction into a person's life for them to learn something or whatever the case might be some greater or higher purpose. Jesus said that's not the way it works. Jesus said there's two sides. There's an enemy, a thief, called Satan or the devil, and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Everything that steals, kills, and destroys is of the devil. Has to be. You know, you can if you just use common sense, good logic would, would help you to understand that. If God was going to bring sickness or destruction into somebody's life, where would he get it? There's none in heaven. Where would he get sickness or destruction to to attack somebody, to teach them something? He would have to be using Satan as his agent because Satan is the author of sickness and destruction. He'd have to be using Satan as his agent to do his will. Anybody think God and the devil are partnered up? I've never heard anybody claim that. But that's the only logical possibility if God's behind it. But he's not. He's not. Jesus said, the thief comes not but for to steal, kill, steal, and to destroy. But notice what he said about himself. He said, but I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. In other words, this quality of life that he has that mankind did not have, that God himself possesses, he came to bring it to you. Now, how does that happen? Well, we know in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, talking about being saved, making Jesus the Lord of your life, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. One translation says a new species of being. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. In other words, there's something that never existed before that now exists when you get born again. A quality, a classification of life. That never existed before. I want you to look with me at one other scripture, and that's over in Second Peter chapter one. I'll read a couple of these, but verse four is what we want to get to. I'm going to start in verse two. Second Peter one, verse two. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice how grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge that we gain through the Word of God of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. Verse 3, according as his divine power has given unto us all things, notice that's past tense, has given, not going to give, but has given, unto us all things that pertain unto life, zoe, and godliness. Notice those things are already given. Notice everything that pertains to the life of God has already been given unto you. Now, how could Peter say that? Because he's writing to people that are born again. He's writing to people that have accepted and made Jesus the Lord of their lives, He's writing to people that have become new creatures in Christ Jesus. And so he says, you've got everything that pertains to life and godliness already in your possession. In other words, the life of God is yours. The life of God is not something you get when you get to heaven and we get rid of this body. The life of God is yours now. 
if what he told us is true. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. How does that come? Through the knowledge of him, Jesus, that has called us to glory and virtue. Whereby, because this is true, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these, these promises, in other words, the word of God, those things that are written to us by the Holy Ghost, that by these you might be partakers. It already belongs to you, but now he's telling you how to be a partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, what is the divine nature if it's not the life of God? What could he possibly be talking about other than the life of God? So he's saying being born again gives you access to the life of God. It makes you a new creature. God imparts his divine nature in you, and the word of God tells you how to operate in life so that you can take advantage of what's yours. There were two people that came to Jesus that uh, are interesting when we when we talk about the life of God. One was Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus came and said, Good master, we know that you're come from God because nobody can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. Well, excuse me, but I think we could name him Captain Obvious. I mean, this is not some deep revelation he's received here. How could anybody do the miraculous works that Jesus is doing? And that's just at the beginning of his ministry. How could he do the miraculous works? How could anybody do the miraculous works that Jesus had already done except that God is helping him and doing the work? Now, Jesus then then describes to him or tells him, identifies to him, what is the key to the miraculous? Nicodemus' whole thing, his whole point is you're doing miracles. God's got to be with you. God has to be on your side because you're doing miracles. And Jesus says, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven except you be born again. Now, it sounds like, to the casual reader, it sounds like Jesus is changing the subject, but he's not. He's saying that the key, the access point to the miraculous that Nicodemus is wowed by is the new birth. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Why? Why is the new birth the access point? Because that's the point where man's nature is changed. Man's nature has changed. Christianity is the only religion on the face of the earth. And I hate to really even compare Christianity with other religions because there's one true religion, one true way to God. I don't even like to use the word religion, to be honest with you. But there's one true way to God, and that's only through Jesus. It's not Jesus or any number of other ways. It's, it's fashionable nowadays to say there are many paths to God. Well, there never have been many paths to God. There was one path to God in the Old Testament, and that was through the promise of the the Redeemer. Now there's one path to God, and that is through the fulfillment of the Redeemer's work, Jesus. That's it. Now, I know that's not popular. Muslims don't like to be told that they're on their way to hell, and Allah is not God. Muhammad is a fraud, a pedophile and a fraud, but I digress. (laughs) People don't like to hear things like that. It's not correct to say things like that. You've got to be careful about saying it in public. Because all those peace-loving Muslims get upset. But there's one way to God, and that's Jesus. He is the only way to the Father. Buddha's not the way to God. Hinduism is not the way to God. 
Confucianism is not the way to God. And New Age is not the, New Age is not the way to anything. <laughs> Much less God. Jesus is the only way. So when Jesus says, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven except you be born again, he hasn't changed subjects at all. He's identifying the new birth is the only way that you can receive the nature or the life of God and see the miraculous. Now, notice what Jesus identifies. Jesus attaches an unbreakable link between the life of God and the miraculous. Now, for 1,900 years, all but the first generation of the church, the church has majored on two things. They've majored on forgiveness of sins and behavior. And neither one of those are the crux of Christianity. Neither one of those are the focal points of Christianity. Now, I mentioned earlier that there were two guys that came to Jesus. I mentioned one of them, that was Nicodemus. The other guy was the rich young ruler. Now, the rich young ruler... There's only one person that could be or one group that could be a ruler of the Jews, and that's the Pharisees. They were under Roman rule, and Roman, the Romans would not share their rule, uh, uh, civil rule in any way whatsoever with the Romans, with the, uh, with the Jews. They kept them subservient. They kept them under their domination. So when it, the Bible says that this was a young ruler, I think it's Luke 18, that talks about both Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about the rich young ruler. Luke 18 says a certain ruler came to Jesus. So he's got to be a ruler of the Jews, which means he's got to be the Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were the strictest sect of the religious people. They were the ones in charge. Over the, the history of the Jews, it would kind of flip-flop between whether the Sadducees were in power or the Pharisees were in power, and it usually depended on who was a, uh, which group the high priest belonged to. But at the time that Jesus was here on the earth, the Pharisees were in charge. And so this ruler is a Pharisee by nature. Now, the Pharisees were considered to be the strictest of the strict. They were the top dogs. They were the ones that kept the law. They they wouldn't... Uh, well, Jesus talked about how strict they were. He said, you pay tithes of the smallest seed that there is, but you omit the weightier things like love and justice. So that's what it means when, it talk, when I was ma- mentioned of the fact that they were strict. They would follow the law to the smallest degree. Now, that means that this guy is offering sacrifices every year. That means that his sins are forgiven through the Day of Atonement every year. That means he's doing everything that's supposed to bring him in good stead with God, right? But he comes with a very important question. He says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's a guy whose sins are forgiven, and he knows it's not cutting it. Folks, let me make a a comment here that I hope you'll think through. And understand what I'm saying. And that is this. Jesus did not, even though the church world by and large uses this phrase, and I'm probably guilty of it too. I'm not throwing rocks at anybody else. I'm probably guilty of using the, the, uh, the phrase forgiveness of sins loosely. Because we talk about Jesus came to forgive our sins. He really didn't. Because forgiveness of sins wouldn't do you much good. If that's all Jesus did is wipe away your past, it would take you no time to create another past that was just as sinful as the one you left. So forgiveness of sins is really not the key issue. I mean, it's a great benefit. But if forgiveness of sins was all that there was, then you're going to go right on sinning, and he's going to have to forgive your sins again, which puts you back under the Old Testament sacrifice or the Old Testament law where their sins were forgiven every year when they offered a sacrifice for Israel on the Day of Atonement. 
This is what the situation is with the rich young ruler. He's, his sins are forgiven. His past has been wiped away from the point of the last day of atonement. We don't know what time of year it was, so we don't know how um, spotless he is from that point. But he has no past except to last the last sacrifice made for Israel. Yet he comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He knows that forgiveness of sins is not what brings him in right place with God. Well, then why does the church focus on and major on forgiveness of sins? What's happened is that the church, by and large, is in the same condition as the rich young ruler. They know their sins are forgiven. They've been preached to that their sins are forgiven, but they know they're not right in the right place with God that they ought to be. They know they're not living the right kind of life that they ought to. They know that their behavior is not what satisfies their own heart. They know they don't have the fellowship with God that they wish to have from within. So the church is majored on forgiveness of sins. The church is majored on behavior. And neither one of those is what Jesus came to give us. Jesus came that we might have life. Jesus came to change our spiritual nature. Change our spiritual nature. Now, there's two major thoughts in the church world. One school of thought, everything else, there's a lot of different offshoots of this, but but two major ones, everything else falls under these categories. One offshoot, or or, um, one school of thought, I should say, is that God is sovereign. And because God is all-powerful, he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, he is sovereign, his will reigns supreme, therefore, God's in control of everything that happens. Now, I grew up with this doctrine, and I knew it left me dissatisfied. I wasn't... Uh, because I was young, young boy, I wasn't wise enough to think this thing through. But there were certain things about it, even what I knew at a young age, that, that just didn't sit right with me. Now, here's the problem with the sovereignty of God's side. If God is sovereign, then all you have to do is think through just casually. I mean, you, you don't have to be a, a great scholar. You don't have to be a church historian. But you can just casually think through and realize if God's sovereign, then man's will means little, or, if anything. Which means there's a lot of problems that you have if you can believe in the sovereignty of God and God's in control of everything. That means you're going to have a lot of problems with it, with a number of scriptures. There's a lot of scriptures that you just are going to have to explain away or ignore. Because the sovereignty of God's side says, well, that's not the way it is, Pastor Mike. Man's will still counts. But since God is sovereign, God makes you will what he wants you to will. But no matter how you slice this or dice this or cut it up or, or parse it or whatever you want to do, you have to come to the conclusion that God, if his will is sovereign, if he is sovereign, he's controlling everything, then God is picking winners and losers. He's picking some to be saved and some to be unsaved. Now, it doesn't matter if man wants to be saved. What if somebody that's unsaved really wants to be saved? Well, sovereignty of God's side says that can't happen because God controls their wills. But then even among Christians, he's got to be picking winners and losers. He's picking some to be to walk in, in uh, physical health. He's picking some to be sick. He's picking some to succeed and some to fail. And if that's the case, what are you going to do with scriptures like Mark chapter 11, verse 24, where Jesus said, therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire. When you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. What are you going to do about that? And what are you going to do about scriptures like John chapter 15 and verse 7, 
Where Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will. What are you going to do about Jesus saying, whosoever will, let him come unto me and I will in no wise cast him out. What if somebody is is on the wrong side of things and wills the wrong thing? What if they will the things of God, but they picked have been picked by God to be a loser? Well, the sovereignty of God's side says that can't be, because since God is sovereign, He's controlling everything. Well, then why did God give man a will to begin with? What's the point? And why even in the Old Testament did God say, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life? What does it matter what we want to choose? What are we going to do with these things? And the granddaddy of them all, the big, 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 big problem that the sovereignty of God's side has is since Jesus was God, everything Jesus said had to be correct, right? Well, then what are you going to do with Luke ten nineteen, Where Jesus said to the disciples, behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. How can God be sovereign if he's giving man authority? Here's the other school of thought. The other school of thought is God is sovereign. He is the creator of the universe, and as a result, His through his sovereignty, he has exalted his word above his name, which is what the Bible says. His sovereignty establishes the word as the criteria for what man will receive. Therefore, man's free will and choice is intact. Whosoever will, let him come. And the willingness comes from his heart through the knowledge of the word. That would mean, therefore, that God's not picking winners and losers. It's up to the decision and the choice and the will of man based on their knowledge of the word. In other words, God's sovereignty says, my word declares this, this is the area that I operate in. These are the boundaries in which I operate in. Yeah, but God's all-powerful, right. And he's all-powerful enough to say these are the boundaries that I'm going to operate in. It doesn't mean that he can't operate without them or outside of those boundaries. He said, these are the boundaries that I choose. And those boundaries are defined by his word. Now, if that's the case, then the responsibility for man, whether winning and losing, whether sickness or health, whether success or failure, is left unto mankind through the knowledge of the word. Now, folks, is that not just exactly what we read over in 2 Peter chapter 1? In other words, the determination for man's outcome is man's will based on his application of the word of God. And God gives the same word to everybody. Now, here's a problem that we have on this side. Some will say, well, if that's the way it works, then we're going to do the same works that Jesus did, which he said, John 14, verse 12. Verily I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And even greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my father. That's the connection between the new birth and the miraculous that Jesus made in John chapter 3, talking to Nicodemus. In other words, if you're born again, you have the life of God within you, and therefore you have access to the miraculous just like Jesus did. And some would say, yeah, but we're doing greater works than Jesus did because Jesus couldn't get people saved. 
He hadn't yet been to the cross when he was here on the earth, so he couldn't get people saved. So we're doing the greater works. Okay, that's great. I don't believe that's all that he's talking about, but let's assume for the sake of argument that that's what it means. What about him saying you'll do the same works? Did he not do miracles as his works here on the earth? I mean, if that were true, then that verse should read, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, he won't even have to bother with because he'll be doing greater works. But that's not what he said. He said you'd do the same works and even greater works. So some will say, okay, well, then if we're doing the greater works, if we're doing the same works, if we're doing miraculous things like Jesus did because of the life of God on the inside of us, and it's up to man's will and free will and choice and not God's sovereign design, then why don't we get the instant results that Jesus got? Well, in the first place, Jesus didn't always get instant results. The ten lepers were healed as they went. The nobleman's son began to amend from the hour that Jesus spoke. So there are instances where he didn't get instant results. But on the same hand, Jesus said that the kingdom of God, which would include the miraculous, the kingdom of God works like somebody planting seed in the ground. He said he goes to bed and he gets up in the morning, day after day after day, and it's working in the ground. The seed's working in the ground. He doesn't even know how. Well, that indicates that that's not instant results, doesn't it? Otherwise, you wouldn't have to be going to bed and rising and it working without your knowledge. No, the, the kingdom of God is like a man planting seed in the ground. About a week ago, I, I uh, got some tomato plants that I'm going to plant in my backyard. Well, I've had them sitting out for about a week, getting everything ready to, to plant them. Wouldn't it be silly for me to take them back to the store and say, well, these things aren't producing yet? I got bad tomato plants. No, in fact, some of them won't germinate and won't produce fruit for 70 days. Others won't produce fruit for 85 days. It's just the way that it works. And that's the way faith works. Faith is not an always an instant result. Sometimes it is. And sometimes those instant results are a curse. Because then we think a real faith produces instant results. And that's not always the case. Real faith can take years. As a matter of fact, look at the Old Testament patriarchs. They prophesied things that didn't come to pass for hundreds of years. Have you ever noticed the Bible says prophesy according to the proportion of faith? The longer it takes something, the greater faith it takes to bring it to pass. So you got two schools of thought. God's in charge or man's will determines. And which is right? Well, anybody that thinks that God is in charge of all the tragedy and destruction and the evil things that take place in the earth, really, I don't know how they can claim to even read the Bible. Because Jesus clearly said, we read in John 10, verse 10, the thief comes but for to kill, to steal, and destroy. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 54. Let me show you something here. Isaiah chapter 54. Here's a favorite of the Sovereignty of God group. I want to read this in context. So maybe we should start reading in verse. um, Let's start in verse 11.
It says, O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires. In other words, God's saying, speaking to Israel, he's saying, he's saying, I know you're afflicted. I know you're in a hard place, but I'm laying and preparing a foundation for you that's greater than anything that you can imagine. Now, this is talking about Jesus and the new birth of the life that we receive because of the new birth. And I will make thy windows of agates and gates of carbuncles and of all thy borders of pleasant stones. In other words, it's going to be beautiful and pleasant in the sight of God. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of thy children. One translation says, uh, and, I, and the Lord shall teach your children and they shall be great successes. Verse 14. In righteousness, which is what the new birth of the life of God or the divine nature of God is all about. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Now, please notice, he's talking about, speaking poetically of the new birth. And he's saying, the new birth, which will come hundreds of years after Isaiah prophesies this, through the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus, he's saying that righteousness, or the life of God in you, a change of nature. There's only one way that somebody can be righteous for more than one moment at a time. And that's for your nature to change. That's why forgiveness of sins doesn't work. Because if forgiveness of sins was all that Jesus came to provide, then as soon as you had a wrong thought, which could be the second after you get born again, all of a sudden you're unrighteous again. But it's not the seesaw thing. It's not swinging from unrighteousness to righteousness. It's a change of nature so that you are righteous in nature because God gives you his life. And God can only be righteous. Now, because we still have a flesh to contend with, we have a promise of a new flesh when Jesus comes back for the church, but that has not yet occurred. How many of you have found out that hadn't happened yet? Because we only have a promise of that, we still have the experience of sin in our flesh. So our minds are used to thinking contrary to the word. Our bodies are used to doing things that are contrary to what God's commands are, or the, the life of God within us would dictate. Consequently, It's the new nature that changes. And notice what it says that that new nature of righteousness will do, that life of God. Notice what it does. It says, in righteousness you'll be established. The word established means to be unmoved. In other words, once you're righteous, as far as God's concerned, you're righteous. Now, that's a training process for your mind to accept, isn't it? Because we look at ourselves based on behavior. Why? Because the church has preached behavior at us for 2,000 years. Or 1900 anyway. So we think behavior is what dictates righteousness. And it doesn't. Righteousness is based on life. The life of God. Not the life of man, but it's based on the life of God. Because you've received the life of God, you've been made righteous. Now, because of the actions of your uh, your natural mind and because of the actions of your flesh, your sin-experienced flesh, You may not have always lived up to that righteousness that your spirit was imparted to your spirit. But it doesn't change the fact that you are righteous. For example, my son may not be living up to to what belongs to us as webs. But that doesn't change the fact that he's still my son. My son or my daughter or anybody else in my family might be doing things that are contrary to what our family does and what we've decided. This is the way our family operates and the way our family lives. But it doesn't keep them from being my family. 
There have been points in time where my kids have broken fellowship with me over something. They get mad at me. I had my kids look at me in the face and say, I hate you, Dad. Well, that was not a real pleasant moment. But it didn't change the fact, number one, that they were still my son. It didn't change the fact that fellowship was available to them as soon as we patched things up. And we did, and now everything's fine as if it never happened. How can it be differently with God? Are we better parents to our children than God is to his, to mankind? To his sons and daughters? As a matter of fact, Jesus used that very example. He said, if you know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to them that ask him? How is it possible that we think that we're better parents to our children than God could be? It's impossible. Well, we patch things up with our kids. They don't stop being our kids just because somebody messes up, do they? Well, you don't stop being a child of God and therefore a partaker of the life of God, the righteousness of God, just because you mess up. And that's what this is saying. It's saying in righteousness based on the life of God because your nature changed. You shall be established. You can't be moved out of the family of God, folks. There's only one exception, and I don't even, it's so rare, I don't even want to get into it. The reason I don't want to get into it is because so many times people have questions. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? Well, folks, I'm not trying to see how close I can get to it without falling in there. I want to stay in the family of God, don't you? Sure we do. And besides that, if the devil is telling you that you have committed the unpardonable sin, that's a great indicator that you haven't. So in righteousness thou shalt be established. Notice what else it says. Because of the life of God, thou shalt be far from oppression. Oppression's of the devil, isn't it? Oppression is, is pressure, literally pressure from without. It says you'll be far from oppression because of the life of God. For thou shalt not fear. Notice how oppression comes. Oppression comes by you being afraid. The devil tries to bring you, bring fear to you. And if you accept fear, whatever level or measure you accept that fear, then oppression or pressure comes from the outside to hinder you and to bind you. But not so because of the life of God, which is the righteousness of God. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. And from terror, in other words, you'll be far from terror too. For it shall not come near thee. Notice what the life of God does. The life of God puts a shield around you. Now, wait a minute, Pastor Mike. How can that be when we know of Christians that are oppressed? How can it be when we know that Christians are terrorized? How can it be when we know people that have genuinely made Jesus the Lord of their lives aren't living up to what the Bible says is theirs? Because they're not walking in it. Because they're not doing what First, Second Peter 1, 4 that we just read is talking about. Whereby are given to us. Children of God, those that have received the life of God, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these, in other words, by walking in these and renewing your mind to the truth of these scriptures, you shall be partakers of the divine nature. What does being a partaker of the divine nature mean? It means living up to and taking advantage of the benefits of the life of God within you. Because you've escaped the corruption, uh, the corruption that's in the world through lust. That would be the oppression. That would be the terror. That would be fear. That would be anything and everything else of the devil. Now let's keep reading. Verse 15. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Let me read this to you from the, from here I want to start reading from the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. 
In other words, it was the Bible of Jesus' day. This is what Jesus operated by. This is what the New Testament refers to and many times quotes is from the Septuagint. So let me read this from the Septuagint. It said, Behold, um, verse 15, Behold, strangers shall come to, come to thee by me and shall sojourn with thee and shall run to thee for refuge. Other translations, let me read it to you from other translations. It says, um, uh, got the wrong one here. Hold on. Operator error. One translation says, I will never send anyone to attack your city and you will, and you will make prisoners of those who do attack. One translation says, see, they may be moved to war, but not by my authority. One translation says, if anyone attacks you, it will not be my doing. Another one says, watch, if anyone does attack you, it will not be from me. Jerusalem Bible says, behold, they may gather together, but not by me. The uh, complete Jewish Bible says, any alliance that forms against you will not be my doing. Whosoever shall f- tries to form such an alliance will fall because of you. So God's saying, I won't be doing it. He said, you may be attacked, but it won't be my doing. It won't be from me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. In other words, the life of God provides protection against the enemy, the attack of the enemy. Now let's pick up again with... Uh, the Septuagint, verse 16. Behold, I have created thee, not as the coppersmith blowing coals and bringing out a vessel fit for work, but I have created thee, not for ruin, that I should destroy thee. Now, here's a big um, sovereignty of God's scripture is in verse 16. King James says, Behold, I have created the smith that blows the coals in the fire and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the waster to destroy. Well, thank you very much, Father. Thank you for creating a destroyer to come get us. But that's not what it says. Let me read it to you again from the Septuagint. Behold, or I'm sorry, verse 17. No, I'm sorry, it's verse 16. Behold, I have created thee, not as the coppersmith blowing coals and bringing out a vessel fit for work. Well, how did he create us? He created us in his image. But I have created thee for what purpose, Father? Not for ruin that I should destroy thee. Verse 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Now, folks, I I want to submit something to you. Just, again, good sense would show you. How does verse 17 connect to verse 16? If Because if we're reading from the King James and accepting what the King James says alone, it's saying, I created the waster to destroy. I created everything, so I made the waster to destroy. And sometimes that destruction is going to get you. But no weapon formed against you shall prosper. How does that fit? The only way that it does fit is for the the meaning that is brought out in the Septuagint and others where he says, I didn't create you for destruction. I created you to succeed. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Why? goes back to righteousness, the righteousness of verse 14. In righteousness thou shalt be established because of the life of God. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. Notice God's not the one that does it, that does the condemning. You do. I'm going to read from the King, from the uh, Septuagint on verse 17. I will not suffer any weapon formed against thee to prosper. And every voice that shall rise up against thee for judgment, thou shalt vanquish them all. And thine adversaries shall be condemned thereby. There is an inheritance to them that serve the Lord, and you shall be righteous before me, saith the Lord. 
What does the life of God mean to you? That's really what we're getting down to. What does the life of God mean to you? Does it just mean that Jesus lives in your heart? And so you know when this life is over, you're going to go to heaven? If so, I would submit to you that you're partaking of very little of the divine nature. Yet we look at church history and we see people that were greatly used of God and almost without exception. They didn't claim to have something special from God that nobody else can have. They claimed to have gained knowledge of who they really are in Christ. Now, why is the church in the condition that it is? And folks, I would submit to you that for the most part, the church is in a lousy spot. We see things happen in Jesus' day. We see the miracles Nicodemus did. We see the miracles that take place in Jesus' day, that took place in Jesus' day. And people like Nicodemus are in awe, just like I'm in awe. I read scriptures in the Bible and I think, wow, man, Jesus, look at the stuff you did. And it's so easy to think that Jesus had this stuff because he was the son of God. Yet Jesus said that even though he had the same life that the father had over and over again, he credited the work of the father, not something of himself. He said, I'm not the one doing the works. Well, that would include the miracles. I'm not the one doing the works. The father in me does the works. Well, how is the father in him? The life of God. Now, don't get me wrong. He's anointed of the Holy Ghost. Bible says he was anointed without measure. But I look at those things and I think, man, look at the stuff that Jesus did. And I think nobody could do stuff like that. And then I see people like Wigglesworth who had comparable miracles in his life whose credit, he didn't even, uh, he didn't even say that he had some special anointing. He didn't even recognize that it was the gift of faith in operation for the most of his ministry. He would talk about certain things in raising the dead where he was aware of the gift of faith, a faith that came down from heaven. But other than that, he just said it's the word. Put the word to work and it works. And he had marvelous miracles. Same thing with John Lake. These are certainly are not the only two. There was, there's always somebody in every generation of the church, the history of the church. There's always been someone that carried on the miraculous works of God. Every generation. And I got to thinking about that one day and I, I, I got to looking at the works of Jesus and Jesus saying in John 14, 12, that the works that I do shall you do also. And I, and I, I started complaining to the Lord about it. Well, Lord, I'm preaching the same stuff you preached. I'm not seeing the kind of results that you saw. And and you judge this for yourself. I'm not saying that God said this to me. I, it wasn't like I heard words on the inside. But I saw something. And I saw this. I saw that the, even the works that the apostles did in the book of Acts, the early days of the church, the miraculous things that, that happened, and even in the first generation, they didn't have somebody, for the most part, they didn't have somebody going out and preaching that that stuff had been done away with. Jesus didn't have ten of the apostles going out and saying, well, you know, don't expect the miracles anymore. That was just Jesus because he was the Son of God. And then two of them saying, no, you can have the same thing now that Jesus had when he was here. Yet that's exactly what we have in the modern-day church in America, at least. You've got the majority of people preaching against the miraculous works. You've got the majority of people saying that the that the baptism of the Holy Ghost is not of God. You've got the majority of people saying that healing's not for us today. And you've got or, or either saying it's not for us today or saying you never know if it is. Saying something to, to, to plant doubt and unbelief in people's hearts. You know, I got to looking at it. The results that we are getting 
It's a miracle that we're getting what we're getting. Because most of the church in America, it's not like that way worldwide, but most of the church in America is talking about how you can have this stuff. That it's all about the sovereignty of God. It's not about the will of man. Well, that destroys faith. If man's will doesn't matter, then what are you going to believe for? You've got the church preaching that every prayer should be prayed, if it be thy will. Well, if you pray, if it be thy will, there can't be any faith. And faith was the, the, the major element in all the people that Jesus got healed. Let me ask it to you this way. If the same number of people in the church, if the same number of ministers in the church that preach that healing is not for everybody or that healing has been done away with was preaching that salvation was not for everybody and that that had been done away with, how many people would we be getting saved? Now, the Bible says that healing and miracles are a part of the salvation, same salvation that righteousness is part of, that forgiveness of sins, as the church usually calls it. Same salvation, same work of Jesus, same blood of Jesus spilled. He didn't spill one part of his blood for sins and another part of his blood for sickness. It's all part of the same thing. He paid one price, and that price was the price for spiritual death. And because he redeemed us from spiritual death, he redeemed us from sickness, from sin, and from poverty, because that's what makes up spiritual death. Those are the results here on the earth, from spiritual death. How much results would we be getting with people being born into the kingdom of God if the same number of people that preach that healing and miracles are done away with are not for everybody were saying that forgiveness of sins had been done away with or not for everybody? See, I've got to tell you, folks, and I've got it better than most. I spend most of my time trying to talk people into believing that healing is for them. Why? How was it that Paul went to new cities and got whole cities to turn out and got miracles and healings to take place? Because nobody was telling them that Jesus didn't heal today. I've told you the story about T.L. Osborne who was invited by a, a, a full gospel denomination to be a guest speaker at, at uh, their convention. And while he was there, they had a question and answer session in the afternoon. It was a missions gathering. And so there were hundreds of missionaries there. And then a lot of other ministers that weren't missionaries crowded the room because they knew of his success overseas and so forth. And so the director of missions, the, the, uh, the denominational leader for the missions work, was interviewing him. And so he just asked a question. He had Brother Osborne there with a microphone. And so he just asked a question. He said, I want to know how you get so much different results, miracles and healings and stuff like that. You get so many different results, much greater, much more supernatural, much more spectacular results than our missionaries get on the field. Because this full gospel denomination believes in the same Jesus, the same healing, the same miracles. It's part of their charter. They may not be living up to it, but it's part of their charter. And T.L. Osborne said something that was profound. And he didn't pull any punches. He didn't care. He's not part of this group. I asked him about this. Many years later, I told him about that I'd heard Brother Hagin tell this story. He told me the whole thing. He recounted the whole thing to me. He laughed. He said, oh, it was the funniest thing. You should have seen their mouths fall open. Here's what he told him. He said, if I can beat you to a country 
I can get miracles. If I can get to a country and to a people before you do, I can get miracles and healings with in, in incredible measure. I can get spectacular results. But if you beat me to a country, then your people will tell them that God doesn't heal everybody. Your people will tell them that healing has been done away with. It doesn't work the same way it did when Jesus was here on the earth. Now, what he didn't tell them, but what is so obvious is that the denominational missionaries would plant doubt and unbelief in people's minds. Well, there's only one way to overcome that, and that's to teach. And it takes a long time to overcome doubt and unbelief, at least in some people. It's up to the will of the individual. You can change it as quickly as you want to, but so much of it gets so deeply ingrained that sometimes people don't even realize that's what they have. He said, Brother Osborne told me years later, I asked him about this. We were in a meeting, a small minister's meeting in Palm Springs, and I asked him about this. He said, you should have seen their mouths fall open to find out that they were their own hindrance. He said they had no idea. What they thought they were doing is they were just trying to ease people into, uh, you know, we don't want them to get their hopes too high. Show me anybody that Jesus tried to minimize their hopes. Lepers came to Jesus and he said, well, you know, healing is a part of the life of God, but don't get your hopes up. Don't get your hopes up is the same thing as saying you can't have it. And that's exactly what they were doing. And Brother Osborne said they had no idea that they were their own worst enemy. They had no idea that in trying to be sympathetic and understanding with people, they were robbing them of the miraculous power of God. Uh, The flip side of that is that if he did get to a country first, it pretty much wasted that uh, denomination's access to missionary work in in that country. Because the missionaries would get there and they would get through the, go through their whole thing about, well, God sometimes heals and, you know, God sometimes does this, that, and the other. And the people had already seen different. They wouldn't have anything to do with it. They'd run them out of the country. <laughs> They'd call for people like that other guy, that minister that, that ministered healing and got the cripples to walk and the blind people to see. And Folks, these are things that Jesus attached and bound together with the life of God. Except you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He said that in response to the miracles that he worked. What does the life of God mean to you? Jesus made miraculous statements. He said all things are possible to him that believes. Now, again, sovereignty of God has a problem with that. It's easy for them to accept the scripture that says all things are possible with God. But Jesus didn't say that just about God. He said all things are possible to him that believes. Believing is your choice, isn't it? Man, I wish I could find some button to push to make people believe. Doesn't work that way. Here's the problem that we have with our society. And, and you study world history. There has never been a country that had any need of a patent law except after they received the life of God. There is no creative ability in any nation on the earth that has never received the gospel of Jesus. None. You can even get countries like, well, as a matter of fact, in, uh, in 1941, there was a, a commission, a study was commissioned by the military 
in Japan. And in 1941, before America entered into the wars, a few months before America entered into the World War II, the, the Marine, there was a Marine Corps lieutenant colonel, I think he was, that reported back to the United States because they were concerned about how things were going. Is America going to get dragged into the war? Is Japan going to enter in with, uh, with uh, Germany and different things like that? And so the military reported back, this commission reported back that there is no world observer that's concerned about Japan winning over any of major world power. The reason for it is because they're copiers, not creators. Now, why is that? Because Japan has never had a revival. Even the world recognizes the difference between creation and copies. There has never been a nation on the face of the earth that's ever had any need to protect creative ability that hadn't first received the gospel because there is no creative ability until after the gospel is received, usually that generation or the next one coming. And here's where the problem is, where the church, instead of looking for the life of God, is looking for the, looking for the government to fix society. How can you control or create any kind of rehabilitative program for criminals? If you don't change their nature, you can't change their behavior. The government tries to control poverty. If you don't change somebody's nature, you can't free them from the bondage of poverty. The government's trying to pick winners and losers, trying to guard against, well, the the administration now at least, is trying to guard against people that are winning too much when all the time they're putting into the people that are winning too much. And the idea is, the, the concept that they're floating, is that we need to equalize everything. How can you equalize things if you don't change a person's nature? It'll never be anything more than handouts. Food stamps don't change a person's nature. Government handout doesn't change a person's nature. Folks, this is the key to American exceptionalism. Because there was never, in the history of the world, there was never a country that was founded on the Word of God like America was. Not even Israel. It was founded on religious freedom. It was founded on a desire on the part of the founders the people that first came to this continent, to wish to worship God. And that worship of God created revival after revival after revival after revival after revival. No nation on the face of the earth has had as many revivals as America has. None. And that's the, 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 the cause, the origin of American exceptionalism. But now the government's trying to come in and say, well, we need to regulate everything. We need to even things out. Let me tell you something. You can't even out somebody whose life has been changed with the life of God. You can't stop them. You regulate them, tax them, you do whatever you want, and they'll still prosper. And the taxation and the other stuff that the regulation that the government does is not going to lift those that have not received the life of God either. Because it's only through the change of a person's nature that the presence of God begins to affect their lives. You find somebody that recognizes, that receives that life of God, recognizes it, and begins to walk in it. There is nothing that can hold that person back. I don't care what side of the tracks you were born on. 
I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care what your background is, your ethnicity or any other thing, gender or whatever else they want to try to say is a, is a ceiling for you. You can't stop somebody that chooses to be a partaker of the life of God. There's creative ability in you. You may be looking at your paycheck and say, it's not doing it. There is creative ability on the inside of you. There are all things that all things have already been given unto you that pertain to life and godliness. There is a way that the Holy Ghost will show you to make it out and prosper. Not just to get by, but to overcome. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. That life of God is already yours. That nature has already changed you. It's just a matter of walking in it. There's nothing that can hold you back if God's on the inside of you. Not a thing in the world. I don't care what government does. And I'm not looking for government to get better. I'm not looking for somebody in a white horse to come in and save the day for America. There's one thing that will save America, and that's Jesus. And he does it one person's heart at a time. Recreating one spirit at a time. That's what the life of God is supposed to mean to you. That's what, and, and folks, I'm not preaching something new. This is what Jesus is saying. When Nicodemus came to him in John 3 and said, wow, the miracles you're doing really prove that God is with you. He said, you've got to be born again. In other words, it's receiving the life of God, allowing that life of God to change your nature from spiritual death to eternal life. The Bible says now we've received eternal life. Now we're the sons of God. Not when we get to heaven. Now. God left you here to dominate the earth. That's why earthly programs don't work, because Satan is the God of this world. You'll never find anything that is of this world system that will ever work and produce any good for mankind because Satan is the God of this world system. And his job description is very clearly defined by Jesus. He steals, he kills, and he destroys. So I don't care how good something is supposed to sound or is made to sound, it will always bring destruction. Things that well-meaning people are trying to do to help the poor are making more poor people. Because it's this world system at work. Nothing changes until you change the heart and the nature of man. Until man receives the life of God, nothing changes. It just keeps spiraling down further and further and further. But not for you. You're not bound by the government's work. You're not bound by the regulations imposed. Folks, I'm not saying go protest in the streets for lower taxes. That's probably not going to work. It's probably going to be higher and higher taxes the more we go, which means God will just help us make more and more money. It's probably going to be greater regulation, not less regulation, which means God will just give us ways to overcome the regulatory boundaries. There is nothing that can hold back the people of God if they walk in that nature. That divine nature. I think one of the reasons that health care has become such an issue in this country is because there's a revival of healing around the corner. You let everybody start trusting in the government for their health and well-being. Watch God come in and say, oh, yeah. I believe that with all my heart. I believe the tougher things get in the world the more light the church will shine. I believe the more difficult it is for miracles, the more God will burst through 
whatever bubble and barrier the, the, the world imposes. God is still God. He is still the adversary of the enemy. And he still is the all-powerful one. All he's looking for is people here on the earth that will walk according to the nature of God. That's all he's looking for. I don't know about you, but that's, that's going to be me. What about you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that your word is true. Thank you that you've imparted your life and your nature into us. You haven't given us a creed to live by. You haven't given us a set of rules or standards or code of conduct. You came, Jesus, to bring us life and to have life more abundantly. We see the example of that abundant life when Jesus overcame everything that that opposed him. He overcame every work of the devil. He overcame sickness and disease. He overcame lack. He even overcame the physical laws of nature when necessary. Thank you, Father, that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Satan, who is the God of this world, is no match for the life of God in us. Because Christ has redeemed us from spiritual death. Father, I pray for each and every person here. I pray for you to give them creative abilities that they've never yet realized. Give them ideas, divinely inspired ideas, Holy Spirit, to help them financially, to help them in their business, to help them in every area of life. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading each and every one of these people into victory, the victory of healing. I thank you for surrounding them with favor as with a shield. I thank you, Father, that everything they put their hand to prospers. Lord, even in the old covenant, you said you'd make the world jealous of your relationship with Israel. And Israel were servants and we're sons. Draw a dividing line between your people and the world, Father, in these last days. Let your house be a house of peace. A place filled with glory. Where the world is in darkness. And in turmoil and unrest. Let there be perfect peace with your people. Because of the life of God within us. Father, we trust in you. Holy Spirit, we look to your direction. And Father, we thank you for the miraculous in our lives. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. Let's all stand together. I'm going to lead you in a confession. So after you stand, I want you to close your eyes and raise one hand toward heaven and say these words after me. Don't just repeat the words. Let your heart think about what you're saying and agree with it as you say it. The life of God is in me. God's nature is now my nature. God flows in me as real as the ocean flows into the bay. The same life. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. The same life flows in me that is in Jesus. That life enables me to do the miraculous. That life enables me with the creative ability of God. That life makes a way for me so that everything I touch prospers. Thank you, Father, that your life 
that dwells in me puts me over on my job, in my family, and in every area of my life. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. All things that pertain to life and godliness are already mine. I am a partaker of the divine nature. And therefore, I walk in victory. I walk in health. And I walk in the miraculous. In Jesus' name. Amen. Do you believe that? Amen. That's what the Bible says about you and me. That's exactly what the Bible says about us. That's what we can have. It's up to us. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Come on back and be with us for prayer school and healing school tonight if you can. And we'll see you then.